The message this morning is again on obtaining greater power. And last week, what we began to do was share with you how that we had talked about the power in the blood of Jesus, the power in the name of Jesus, and the power of the Word of God. And I raised the question, how do we apply these to our life in spiritual warfare? How do we overcome Satan with these weapons? And I did not get to get done, and I'd like to briefly mention some of the things that we said and then conclude this because it really is a very significant message. It's something that, as you hear it, you need to stop and think. Uh, We live in an hour in which the supernatural is pretty much laughed at and ridiculed. In fact, many of the things of the Bible are laughed at, ridiculed by the world that we live in. When it comes to this particular area of spiritual warfare and engaging in warfare against the powers of Satan, you'd find that modern-day psychology just laughs and ridicules and says that's just old mythology, something that is not true. People that get involved in psychology would have a hard time with the things that the Bible says. In fact, many psychologists would say concerning Jesus dealing with this issue, they would say, well, he knew better, but he was meeting the people of that age at their mentality level rather than trying to straighten them out. But that's just dishonest to say the least. A message like this really challenges you. Just like we live in an hour today where the world seems to just uh, grab on to different theories and beliefs and then kind of force it on the population as truth, like evolution, for example. I mean, it's taught in our schools as something that is a fact, even though it's a theory. And look at global warming. Melody mentioned that, as I mentioned the snow. It's just something that is It seems like they're trying to force that upon us to believe that it's true. I wonder if the Lord didn't come for a few more hundred years. I wonder what our ancestors in the future would think as they look back at some of these things that were taught as facts. And they would have in their scientific knowledge moved on beyond that, probably onto something else. Because it hasn't been but 50 years ago, the opposite was taught for global warming. Many of us here were taught as kids that it was global freezing. Just the opposite. (laughs) And that's why we kind of laugh at it. But one thing has stayed the same, and that is the Word of God. It's been in existence for thousands of years. It's stayed the same, and... It is never diminished. God keeps it. He he watches over his word to keep it. But this message of spiritual warfare and the usage of the weapons that we have and dealing with supernatural forces is something that you have to take by faith. And it's something that will challenge your mind and intellect. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would just open your hearts and minds to see what is here that you can be in prayer about it and have spiritual discernment about it and apply it when it needs to be applied. 
So we have studied on the power of the word and the blood and the name of Jesus, but how do we then overcome Satan with these things? Well, let me just mention a few that we said before and then build on that foundation. The first thing is that we have to recognize Satan's forces working. Ephesians chapter 6 and 11 tells us to take unto us the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devils. And then he goes on, the Apostle Paul in his writings, and expresses how that we're in a, in a warfare, but it's not against flesh and blood, but against supernatural principalities and powers, rulers of a dark world that cannot be seen with our natural eye, but it is something that truly exists. We talked about last week in Second Kings where Elisha was being confronted by the Syrian army and his servant said to him, Master, we perish. And what did he say? He said, Lord, I pray thee, open their eyes. Open his eyes to see. And when God opened his eyes, he could see a huge host of angelic beings that were round about them, which protected them and delivered them. There is a third dimension. We only see in the realm of this world. But there is another world. There is another dimension. If we don't believe that, then we, we, we throw all of our faith away because our faith is in another realm, another dimension. That's what it's all about. And the Bible talks about the increase in the end time of immorality, things like homosexuality and lust and disrespect for authority, materialism, divorce, suicide, crime, drugs, alcoholism, false religions. The Bible predicts at the end of the age these things will increase because Satan's forces will be working against the minds of people to bring them forth. First Timothy 4.1 says, In the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to what? Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. I mean, that's the way the Bible lays it out. Sometimes it's in the physical realm, for example. Luke 13.16, a woman there had an issue of blood for many years, could not be cured. She went to Jesus and he healed her. And then when they rebuked him for doing it on the Sabbath day, he said, should not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, he connected it to Satan and the powers of darkness. And then he went on to say, be loosed on the Sabbath day. Or it may be like what is said in, we've got down here on the board, bad advice. When Jesus was expressing to the apostles, trying to forewarn them about how that he was going to be crucified, Peter, who had just got done making a, a great profession of faith by the Holy Spirit, said, be it far from thee, and began to rebuke Jesus for talking about going to the cross and dying. And when Jesus addressed Peter, he didn't address him with an attitude of, oh, Peter, 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 you just, you've got so much to learn. He saw Satan working behind the scenes. And what did he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. He wasn't trying to be offensive to Peter, but he recognized that Peter was being used by the powers of darkness. Or in other areas, like for example in Mark 4 and verse 15, he talked about the thoughts that can be implanted by uh, Satan. In Luke 22, 3, we talked about Judas, how that the Bible says, 
Satan entered into his heart and he betrayed the Lord. Luke 22:31, Acts 5:3 both speak about how that Satan used people to lie unto the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about the, the, uh, his thorns in the flesh, which was a messenger of Satan. And we could go on and on and on and on. We spent all that time. I don't want to go any further. The Bible does not deny the fact of the reality of Satan and his workings in the lives of people today, including Christians. And yet we have a lot of Christians that deny that reality. They have a hard time with that reality. And the reason why is because it's it's not popular, it's not accepted. But to me it's the same attitude as evolution. I mean, I know people that uh, came to this church for years, I know some that didn't, that profess to be Christians. They go to school, they go to college, and all of a sudden they get educated beyond the realm of the Bible and and start believing in things like evolution when the Bible plainly says no. So we could go on and on, but we've got to recognize that many times the powers of Satan are working behind the scenes to affect your life in some way, to hinder your finances, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your health, to destroy your mental well-being, to rob you of something. Too often we're looking at the natural and we need to be discerning to see, is this Satan trying to work to destroy something that is a blessing from the Lord? We're not suggesting that everything is demonic force. There is an unregenerate nature that we have to deal with, with people. Various personality, various types of personalities, natural diseases and calamities. But we need discernment, and that's one of the benefits of the baptism of the Spirit. When we come back from our trip to Arizona in celebration of our 40th wedding anniversary, and let me add to what my wife said, not just 40 years, but 40 good years, 40 blessed years of marriage. You know, you can have four, you could you could have forty years and just tolerating one another, but they've been good good years. Um, when we come back, I want to focus on a lot in regard to the Holy Spirit to remind us of the things the Bible teaches in that area. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, he taught us to pray and believe. Sometimes, like Mark eleven twenty four, with things ever you desire when you pray, believe you receive it, and you shall have it. Matthew eighteen nineteen, all things you ask in prayer believing, you receive. And uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, and on and on. But even though he taught us to pray and to believe, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, when when he was ministering, there were no long formal prayers that he made. Um, he didn't minister the way that people minister today some some minister of the way that Jesus did but it, it it amazes me that here is God coming down here taking upon himself humanity revealing what was intentionally meant in the law not by fulfilling it not by taking away from it and he gave us an example that we're to follow in his steps and when he ministered, he would cast out demons or sometimes he would just 
speak a word, and it was done. No long, formal prayers and so forth, and yet we don't find people following that same example. They've moved away from that. He ministered, and he would speak to issues. Well, if you're going to speak to a problem, isn't that a personality behind it? Or he would pronounce it as something that was just done. Let me give you a couple quick illustrations. Look at Luke chapter 4, for example, and verse 39. He had a ministry to whereby he, he knew when Satan was dealing with something and he would speak to the problem and rebuke it and command it to leave. Other times he would just speak a word of faith and declare it as done. As though he himself had the authority to heal, the authority to uh, restore, and he did have that authority, but as a man. And he turned around and gave that authority unto us. And too often we're praying and begging for God to help us about something when he wants us to just stand up by faith, recognize our place and position in Christ, and speak to the mountain, just like what he said. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 39, for example, we read here of how that he uh, was ministering to Peter's mother-in-law. Verse 38 says he arose out of the synagogue and he entered into Simon's house and Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. He spoke to the fever. He rebuked it. In other words, he saw there not just a, a fever, a virus, an uh, increase in heat. Or he saw a personality attacking his mother-in-law. And he rebuked it. He rebuked the fever. He commanded it to go. He had that kind of discernment. Did he always do that? No. No, he didn't always do that, but he had that kind of discernment. If you look at Mark 2 and verse 10, here, for example, he's got a man that is uh, crippled, and they lowered him down. He was in a, in a building where he was speaking, and they couldn't get the man to him, so they took the roof apart, and they lowered it down. And here he comes now into the midst of them, born on a cot of, by four, and the Pharisees are grumbling and complaining. But look at what he does when he speaks to this situation. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy. And here's what he said. Here's how he ministered. Here's how he prayed for them. You know, not some big, long, formal, drawn-out prayer. He looks at this sick man and he says, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way. He spoke to it. He said, in essence, Be healed. Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. Now, he gave us an example. We're to minister like that. We can't minister like that if we're insecure, if we don't really see the power and the authority we have in Christ. If we don't see the power and authority we have in the name of Jesus, but he would speak a word of faith or he would rebuke a spirit. 
or he would just speak a word. Here's another one, Matthew 10 and verse 7 that I wrote down. Things like this have always kind of, I don't want to say bothered me, but something that I've kind of put in the back of my heart and mind and thought about that he didn't, he ministered differently than the way that most churches would minister today. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7, he ministered with authority. Here he commissions the 12 and another place in Luke's gospel. He commissions 70 and it's almost the same thing. But look what he says in verse 7. Go on out and preach the gospel. He said, and as you go, preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. In other words, he said there'll be a place to rebuke and there'll be a place to pray. And so we've got to recognize that that there is a time to pray and commit things to the Lord and there's also a time to rebuke and cast things out. First Peter 5 is an excellent place where both are put together because verse 7 of First Peter 5 says, Cast your care upon the Lord for it cares for you. Then he went right on to say, be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Whom what? Resist. Sometimes we cast that problem under the Lord and other times we recognize it's in God's hands. The problem is still bothering us and we resist the devil. We put up resistance against him. That God is not our problem anymore. So there's a place where we pray and there's a place where we deal with the devil. And there's a place to whereby we do just what Jesus said. We speak to the mountain. Do you think that was just a figure of speech? When Jesus said, Whosoever shall say to this mountain? In, in one way, yes. But in another way, Moses was told to speak to the mountain. I mean, turn, if you will, over to... Uh, Numbers chapter 20 and verse 8. Moses was told, for example, when the children of Israel needed water and they're out in the wilderness and God wanted to again remind them that he was in complete total control of their life, he told Moses specifically to take the rod, which was that means of authority, and to speak to the mountain. Listen to what it said. Numbers 20 and verse 8. The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, gather the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brethren, and speak unto the rock. Speak to the mountain. Isn't that what he said? Speak to the mountain. Speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it will give forth water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, and so shalt thou give the congregation, and there be strength. He was told, speak to the mountain. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now, rebels, do we need to fetch water out of this rock? And he lifted up his hand, and with the rock, he hit the rock. He smote the rock twice. He was upset. He was frustrated. He was burned out. I, I would have, you know... What a ministry. What he had to put up with. But he took that rod and he went, Here, take your water. He beat on it twice. 
And water came out. Moses lifted up his hands and he smote the rock twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you believed me not. <laughs> I think it took a lot of faith just to hit the rock. You know what I'm saying? But because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this congregation into the land which uh, I have given them. Now there's other things we could say there. But God said, speak. And Moses, yeah, he spoke, but he was upset when he did it. And he hit the rock. And of course, there were probably many that were out there that could rationalize, well, that rock, that water must have been right behind the surface of the rock. And Moses chipped it when he hit it with the rod. Something. To whereby they could rationalize away the great miracle that had been performed. In either case, he was supposed to speak and he went beyond that. Look at Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. After the children of Israel had gone to war with with uh, Jericho and then Ai and some others, they the Gibeonites had heard that they were coming and that they had a goal to destroy all the nations in Canaan. And so they they tricked Joshua. They dressed up, you know, with old dirty clothes and they had old... Uh, and whatnot, and they said they came from a faraway place, and they tricked them into believing that they were a faraway tribe and country, and they made a, a league with them. Then they found out they were their neighbors, the next ones to be conquered. Well, God said, now you're going to have to live with it. You, your word is your bond. You made a covenant with them. Now you're to keep it. Well, when the other tribes like heard, these other big cities heard that Joshua and his army was coming. Five of them gathered together and they attacked the Gibeonites. They went to Gibeon to fight against them. And when they did, uh, they called upon Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, they called upon them to come and to uh, be with them and deliver them. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp in Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants, Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So the children of Israel, they went to, to uh, help out their new for, newly formed ally. And as they started fighting him, the five kings, they just started running and retreating to the mountains. Kind of like what uh, Osama did, you know, when he saw <laughs> the Americans coming after him after 9-11. They just went to hide in the caves. Well, rather than have them go hide in the mountains and the caves, which would have just caused things to be greatly delayed out, God attacked them supernaturally with um, boulders coming down. But then he also told Joshua, speak to the sun. Joshua uh, chapter 10 and verse 12 then spoke Joshua to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And in the sight of all Israel, he said, Son, stand thou still. In other words, <laughs> it was not going to get night for them to run and retreat and hide. That means what? The earth stopped. And scientists have always 
you know, you can get on the internet and even find this where they're when they run their time schedules and stuff, they they say there's a missing day somewhere. And of course, Christians always point back to this and say, here's where it is. It's interesting that just like with Noah's Ark, they have found it. And they know that time-wise, there's been a, a missing time element. And it goes right back to this. I mean, keep in mind, friends, they're able to, to clock exactly how long it takes to get to, like, the moon. The whereby when they shoot off a a, um, a bunch of astronauts, they land at a certain place on the moon. All they, They've got the ability with computers and stuff to really time things down. But anyways, the point is, even if they couldn't, it doesn't matter. The Bible's still true. Joshua here spoke. And the earth stopped. And they were able to overcome their enemies. Moses spoke to a mountain. Joshua spoke to the sun. I'm not saying we run around and start speaking to things like that. I mean, obviously, they had to have the mind, the mind of the Lord. But the point is, they... They didn't pray. Moses didn't go on out there and come up with a big, long, formal prayer. Joshua didn't come, out, come up with a big, long, formal prayer. They spoke a word of faith. And this is what Jesus did. There were times when he ministered that he didn't pray. He spoke. Just exactly what he said in Mark eleven twenty three. In fact, we'll get to that in a moment. Why did he even do what he did there? To teach us something. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 39, he's on a ship sleeping. And the apostles are out on this and a big storm comes up. Verse 37, there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat under the wind so that it was now full. He was at the stern of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and they said, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And he arose and he rebuked the wind. He spoke to the wind. And it ceased and calm. And he said, peace be still. And they were they were afraid. They said, you know, what kind of man is this that can speak to the wind and it obey him? Verse 41. And he got on them for not having faith. Like they should have done it. And we could just go on and on and on and on. So, just like when Jesus... In Mark 11, we're close here. He spoke to the tree and then later on brought it up again. Mark 11, chapter, Mark and 11 and 14. They came across a fig tree and when he found no fruit, because it was not yet the time for fruit to come, Jesus said, no man eat of this fruit tree from here on forever. And the disciples heard it. He cursed a tree. He has the power over nature. He didn't just in a stream going around killing trees. But at the same time, he is here cursing and killing a tree to teach them a lesson. That lesson is, I have the power and authority over nature, and I'm giving you that power and authority over nature as well, over what, what you would look at upon, as upon the things that are created upon this earth. And he went on to say later on when they pointed out, Lord, that the fig trees withered up and died, he said, I say unto you, whosoever will speak to the mountain, it, it must obey. So he's trying to teach us something here, friends, that 
Too often we're just either casting our care upon the Lord and if things don't change, we're, we're doing it again and we're doing it again. We're not using the authority that we should be using. We have an adversary. We should be using our authority against him by the name and the word and the blood. Too often we're not doing that. And too often we're waiting on God to do something and he is waiting on us to use the authority that we have been given to, to fight the good fight of faith. So how do we resist Satan? Well, let me give you some quick things here. And I want to focus on the last one. Recognize, first of all, by virtue of our relationship to Christ, that we have authority over him. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6, we might want to turn there for this, that the Bible says that we have been crucified with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been risen with Christ, we're ascended with Christ, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Legally, everything that Jesus has, we're joint heirs, has been given unto us, and we utilize that by virtue of the power of the name, of his name. It's the power of attorney. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, we can back up a little bit. He says, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ and has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, he says, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ by virtue of the power of his name. Where is he at? What significance does this have when it comes to Jesus? Ephesians 1.21 says, that he, he talks about Paul's praying here. Let's, let's pick this up. Paul's praying here. He says, I pray, verse um, 16, I cease not to give thanks for you and make mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Boy, that's what we need. We need the wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Christ. That our eyes of understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of our calling, what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. He's speaking of several things here. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand, in heavenly places, far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and given him to be head over all things to the church. He is far above all principalities and powers, they are under his feet. We are in him. So just as Satan had to bow to Jesus, he's got to bow to us when we're standing in faith and using his name. You know, if we could just get a hold of the power and the authority we have, and if it doesn't work, it raises a question, why? Why isn't it working? Are we doing something wrong? Is the Bible not true? 
Well, if the Bible's true, are we doing something wrong? If we're doing something wrong, what do we need to do? You know what I'm saying? What do we need to do to increase that power? Well, in Colossians chapter 2, the same thing is mentioned. And then in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he makes this comment, If you then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection upon things above and not on things on the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Maybe we got too much of our attention and our love and our focus and our priorities on things down here. And when it comes to the things of God, they take, they come in as an afterthought. They come in as, a, well, if I have time. They come in as, uh, well, if I'm not busy, they don't have priority. We're not seeking first the kingdom of God. I mean, that's something you, as an individual, have to decide for yourself. If the power and the authority of Christ has been given unto us, and he could heal the sick, and he could cast out the demons, and he could deal with nature... Why don't I have that power? He said I would have it. Is it a lack of faith? Is it a lack of consecration? This is something that you, as an individual, ought to be really searching in your own heart about and saying, Lord, why? I mean, like Gideon said one time. He said, Lord, why? Well, I hear about these big miracles, but why don't I see them yet? And then God dealt with him to whereby Gideon saw some of those things. And like Elisha, after Elijah had been caught up and his mantle came down, Elisha grabbed it, Second Kings, he says, where's the Lord God of Elijah? And he went forth and twice as many miracles Elisha did as he, as he did Elijah. Someday I'm going to teach on First and Second Kings and the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. And it's just amazing the power and the authority that those guys had. This has been a question that a lot of spirit-filled Christians have raised is that why don't we have that authority that we should have? All we can do is go by what the Bible says. All we can do is, and, and right here, what he says is, crucify, mortify your members which are upon the earth. And he starts describing the life that we live. And basically what he says is the same as, as over here in, in Galatians. If you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Somebody asked me one time, you make it sound like you, got, you, you need to be perfect to get an answer to prayer. No, that's not the case. But if you want more power in your life, you have to live a more committed, consecrated life to God. I do believe that. And again, obviously the power is something that God turns on, but he is not going to take and turn on the power for someone that's going to misuse it and use it to destroy or to glorify himself rather than glorify God. But what we need to do is recognize our place and position of authority in Christ. Secondly, we need to remember the victory that we have in the blood. The blood of Jesus forgives us of our sins. The blood of Jesus covers us and protects us. We need to learn to command Satan to depart in Jesus' name. 
We are not to politely request. We are not to pray. We're not to say, please. I remember Wigglesworth one time wrote one of his books. It might have been Ever-Increasing Faith. But he was talking about the very same thing that I'm talking about. And he made it, He said he was somewhere, it might have been South Africa, I forget. But he said that there was a woman, he and a, a woman were waiting for a bus. He didn't know the woman, but he was standing there waiting for a bus. And the woman had a dog, and the dog came around. The dog kept kind of messing at the leg of the woman, you know. And she wanted the dog to go back into the house because this bus was coming. And so she would say to the dog, go on, honey, get back, go on, go on. Get back, honey. Real nicely and so forth, telling the dog to go back. The dog just kept, you know, nuzzling up to her, and I want to go with you. And finally she took and stomped her foot. She goes, get it! The dog scurries off. And he was trying to make a point. If we really have the authority that we say we have, the devil's going to know whether or not we're being timid whether or not we know who we think we are, whether or not we know we have that authority, or we're just trying something, we're just copycatting something. There's a place to whereby when you know you have authority, you use it. You, you use it without question and doubt, knowing that whoever it is that has given you that authority is going to back you up. And you are not afraid to stand strong and use it in that regard. With Jesus, he would speak directly to the forces of darkness. When those others understood that authority, they always did it in his name. Let me give you a quick example. Acts 16, 16. The Apostle Paul, for example, was out ministering, and there was a woman that was a, a fortune teller, although she didn't have a sign, you know, that said, you know, fortune teller for hire or whatever. She was following these men that were preaching the gospel. And her message that she used sounded good. It says, verse 16 of 16, Acts 16, It came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her master's much, brought her master's much gain by suicide. Same followed Paul and us, crying and saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Good message. But there was something about, something about this woman, something that grieved Paul in his spirit. This did she many days. And Paul, being grieved, somehow inwardly by the Spirit, he had discernment, that this is not a blessing from the Lord, he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you, he didn't say, I command you, come out of her. He said, what? I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. We don't have that power in ourselves. We don't have that authority in ourselves. It's something that he has and he has given it unto us and said, in my name, use it. But as we've said, if you've been following along these teachings, we just don't use it indiscriminately. We've got to use it in the Spirit. Remember he said once to some that they said, Lord, have we done this, this in your name and this in your name? And he said, I didn't know you. We have to use it in an authorized fashion. 
Fourthly, we've got to use the Word of God. It either has to be the Word directly or it has to be something in harmony with the Word. Fifthly, we're in a warfare. First Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. There are some times you've got to recognize if you want something, you've got to fight for it. It isn't just going to be given to you. So how do you fight for it? You wrestle with it. You resist the devil. You pray for greater discernment. You intercede in the Spirit. You may have to fast to deal with to break the powers of Satan. How bad do you want it? Matthew 26.41 talks about intercession. We'll talk about this more later on, but there's a place where we've got to fight for it. Galatians 5.16, Ephesians 4.27 says, Give no place to the devil. Galatians 5.16 says, If we live in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. James 4.7 says, Resist the devil, and he will flee. It's too easy to just accept things for what they are or just just look for the best that man can do and the supernatural and the anointing and power of God just goes unused. And lastly, since the spoken word is so important, we need to guard our mouth and mind. And I want to just focus on this the rest of the morning. We've got to get a hold of the fact that what we say, I think too often, we're throwing the power switch with what we say. You hear me? Just like the switch on the lights are on and off switch, I think it's the same way that we're turning that power on and off by not controlling our tongue. Proverbs 18.21 says, Life and death is in the power of your tongue. Life or death, it's in the power of your tongue. In other words, God's power has been given unto us. And whether that power produces the life that we want or it does not deliver us from the powers of Satan, that power is in your tongue. Isn't that what he said? Life and death, life and death is in the power of your tongue. So let me give you some quick things to think about in regard to your tongue. Number one, determine to speak less and really... Guard and think about what you say. Proverbs chapter 18. I see I got that maybe wrong written. But I believe Proverbs 18 and 7 or 17 says, In the multitude of talk, sin is unavoidable. Have you ever found where you just sometimes just get to talking too much and then as soon as you get done you say, Wow, I blew it. I I Man, I moved into the realm of negativeness on that, didn't I, Lord? I just disannulled what I was believing for, didn't I? Have you ever done that? Have you ever just talked too much and regretted it? You should have kept your mouth shut? Come on, be honest. Anybody? I have. You probably too, Chris. Don't just point to her. 
I mean, I don't, you know, there's just been a lot of times that I have said to myself, way to go, idiot. You blew it. We're not supposed to do that. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there's a time to speak and a time to be quiet. Can you all say, can you all say this with me? Think about it. When Jesus walked this earth, he was the perfect man. He's the one that we're to strive to be like. Did he have his tongue under control? Huh? Absolutely. When Moses blew it out in the wilderness, when he, when he, when he spoke to the rock, and he didn't speak, he hid it. His heart was ventilating some frustration, and it came out of his what? Mouth. What did he say? He didn't say, Hero Israel, God wants to bless you with water. Rock, bring forth water. No, he said, Here, you rebels. Frustration, anger, upset. Here, rebels, <clears throat> take your water. Bam! Hit it again. I mean, you can hear his heart coming out of what he said, and that's what the Bible says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Satan just, oh, he loved it. He loved it. That stopped Moses from going into the promised land. I mean, yes, they got their water, but they, but uh, it isn't what God wanted. So there's a time to speak, and there's a time to be quiet. From the time we were little kids, we were taught to speak. You know, I can remember, well, I can't remember, but I can remember saying to my kids. I mean, how many of you can remember your mommy and daddy saying to you when you were eight months old, say, dead, dad, mama. I doubt any of you can, but we did it with ours. It's a traditional thing. They start to speak a little bit, and right away, mama says, say, mama, 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 and daddy says, say, did, 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 and there's a little competition thing going on. And we, we encourage them to speak and speak. And then after a while, we kind of want like, oh, back off. Leave you back. Not so much, eh? Now, some kids are quieter than others. That's their personality. And others just seem to have a motor mouth. But it's, we, the Bible says that in the multitude of talk, sin is unavoidable. Proverbs 10, 19. I wrote this one down. To whereby... We have got to limit what we say. I mean, sometimes we just... <laughs> I can remember men that were here that now have retired and so forth. And I, Brother Vern was one that always was quieter. Didn't say much. He kept his mouth shut. <laughs> Whereas his other half was kind of the opposite. You know, going, going, going. And they're probably listening to this. I hope they're laughing. I'm not picking on them because they do listen to these teachings. But he was a man of wisdom that learned to refrain his lips. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that can refrain his lips is wise. One thing I do remember my father saying to me over and over and over again when I was a youngster, was count to ten before I spoke. Count to ten before I spoke. And I don't know if he was saying that to belittle me or not. I don't know. He wasn't saying it in a, in a, in a kind-hearted, loving, wisdom-passing-on manner. It was more of a, don't be stupid, Michael. Think, count to ten before you speak. 
But what he said was still true. And I, the older I get, the more I agree with, yes, that is right. Stop and think. Measure what you're about to say. David said he prayed and asked the Lord that he would keep his mouth. Psalm 141.3 We are responsible for what we say. It's your mouth. It's your mouth. Don't blame anybody else. You're responsible. And the Bible says in Matthew 12.36 that we one day will all give an account for every idle word that we speak. Idle word just means a word that we did not control. It just fired out of our mouth because we just were angry or upset or impatient or frustrated or whatever. And when he says we'll all give an account for it, we will. Bless your hearts. Listen, I, we said this last summer. We taught on it. I don't know if, ever, if, if everybody even agreed with it, but it's still true. Go back and listen to them. We are going to be rewarded and blessed based upon our overcoming life in this world. Not all things are going to be equal on the other side, like everybody, like a lot of people think. You know, you can live like the devil over here. When you get over there, you're just going to get rewarded and blessed with everything possible to receive. It isn't that way. The Bible talks about uh, rewards gained and rewards lost. Wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, precious stones. Uh, and on and on. It's a mystery as to what all those rewards are. But God is going to bless those that will be faithful down here. So determine in our hearts to control what we say. Psalm 39 and verse 1. The older you get, the more you should agree with what I'm saying. That I, that I need to really watch what I say, stop and think, and ask a few questions. Is this faith? Is it doubt? Is it worry? Is it frustration? Does it edify? And determine it'd be better to say nothing than to say something negative and doubtful and contrary to what you've prayed for and believed. Hebrews 10.23 says, hold fast to your confession of faith. Because he's, God is faithful. David said in Psalm 39.1, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I'm going to keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Well, that same thing is true when it comes to the wicked one. That he's got a microphone right up before our face waiting to broadcast before the heavenly host all the negativeness and the doubt and the fear and the worry let God know, because he's the accuser of the brethren, that we are not standing in faith like we should be. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. And over in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, let me find it real quick. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2, verse 1 and 2, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty 
to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and you're upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Solomon had great wisdom. And he said, learn to keep your foot out of your mouth when it comes to the things of God. Whoa. Just reading these does a little bit of, does a work of conviction. Proverbs 23, 7 says, what? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so he goes on to say in Proverbs 4.23, Keep it, that is the heart, with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues, the problems, the issues of life. What are issues of life? My marriage, my finances, my health, my job, my relationships with others. Those are issues that come up. And if I keep the heart with all diligence, I can keep the mouth under control and I can learn to pray and cast cares unto the Lord and I can learn to speak the situations by faith that they be gone and I can learn to deal directly with Satan by the name of Jesus. And I can apply the name, the word, the blood. It all fits together. God wants us, Satan wants to control our mind and mouth and God wants us to control it Per his ways. So, determine in your heart, no matter how bad the circumstances may get, that you're not going to be negative and you're going to hold fast to your confession of faith. Mark 11.23 says, Whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed and be gone, and believe in his heart that what he says shall come to pass, He shall have whatsoever he says. What do you want? Life or death? It's in our tongue. Learn to harmonize your confession with what God says. Romans 10.10 says, With the heart man believes, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We wouldn't dare think of running around telling people we weren't Christian, that our sins weren't forgiven, that they weren't under the blood. Every Christian does that. But what about applying it to every other situation in life? And this is something important. I don't want you to copycat people. I don't want you to be a parrot. I don't want you just to do something because you're told to do it. This has got to be done from the heart. The woman in the woman that was the Shumanite that got blessed with a child, and the child ended up dying, and she took and laid that that child upon Elisha's bed that was made for him for a a place to stay as a prophet. When she went out to get him and her husband was trying to stop her and ask what was going on, the King James says, all she would say is, what? It is well. The Greeks, or the Hebrew says, shalom. What she said was, peace. And when I found that out, I didn't find that out till later on in later years of ministry when I looked it up and I thought, wow, that's a shalom. But it really, really touched a chord in my heart. She wasn't trying to copycat a confession. She wasn't trying to just mimic words like we had seen through the years. Some people would just mimic stuff like a parrot. Because there was some kind of magic formula in a word. 
And that's how you get off on these things like Logos and Rhema because people are trying to understand that. The woman believed in her heart that she was given a child as a blessing from the Lord. She didn't maybe understand why it was taken away, but she knew because she said to Elisha, when given, she said, don't deceive me, don't don't trick me. He said, no, you're going to receive. She evidently had cast it upon the Lord, and she was going to find him to let him know, but in her heart she had a peace about the situation. There are so many times that you may be confronted by unbelieving people that are raising questions about things that you're going through, things that you're confronted with, and, and, and you don't quite know how to answer them because you know they're not going to understand what you say. And if you bring out a word of faith that's real blunt, you're going to find that it may just end up in an, uh They're going to want to argue with you and talk you out of the faith. So you don't, don't know quite what to say. You don't. It's none of their business. It's none of their business, so you don't have to tell them anything if you don't want. But what a blessing just to be able to say back something simply from your heart if you're sincere. Well, you know, I have prayed about it, and I've got a peace about it. God's got it under control. That's the same thing. That's it right there, friends. You're expressing your faith. You don't have to quote an exact scripture. You don't have to parrot what somebody else said. You don't have to read a book and testimony and copycat that. Just express your confidence in God. But if you find you can't do that, or you're not doing that, ask yourself the question, am I talking too much? Am I snaring myself? Do I need to shut up? Do I need to stop and think about what I'm saying? Do I need to weigh my words and keep my mouth so that I don't destroy my faith in God in that area and not receive? James says the perfect man is able to bridle the tongue. If we want more power in our life, we've got to learn to bridle the tongue, stop and think about what we say, and keep it in harmony with the principles of what God says in his word after we pray. Lastly, don't be swayed by outward negative circumstances or people. When Jesus was in situations where people were believing for something and he could sense that their faith was going to be hindered by someone else, he was always right there to say, don't listen to that. Let me give you an illustration. And I find the Holy Spirit from within says the same things to us. We've prayed about something. We've settled it with the Lord. We've got it in His hands. It's done. And then, lo and behold, somebody comes around that starts expressing a bunch of negativeness and a bunch of uh, magnification of the problem and we start yakety-yakety-yakking and we get into starting to move away from what God says in His Word. When And if we listen to that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit from within... He's telling us, be quiet. Don't listen. Get away from that. Change subjects. Jairus was a man who had who wanted healing for his daughter. And so he went with Jesus to pray for the girl. 
And along the way, the woman with an issue of blood stops him and he got delayed. So while they were there, they came and they said uh, to him, the daughter, your daughter is now dead. Don't bother the master any further. And he, Jesus said, while he yet spoke, there came, verse 35, from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain which said, your daughter's dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said, don't be afraid. Only believe. Don't be afraid. Have, how many of you have been confronted with situations where you're applying the principles of faith and what we're teaching and inwardly the Holy Spirit is trying to comfort you and encourage you and he's saying, don't be afraid. Only believe. Take one day at a time. Sufficient unto the day is evil thereof. That's Jesus speaking by the Spirit to our heart. It's like we're seated with him and he's putting his hand on your knee saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, only believe. And then verse 37, he suffered no man to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of Jesus. He didn't want Thomas in there. He didn't want any doubting relatives in there. He didn't want a bunch of negativeness in there. I mean, they're confronting a situation where this girl's dead. And when he was come in, he said, Why make you this ado and weep? The damsel's not dead but sleep. And they laughed him to scorn. And he ignored them. And when, he, when they had all went out, he took the father and the mother and the damsel and them that were with him. And he took the damsel by the hand. And he spoke and said, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she arose. And of course, the greatest miracle of the Bible is raising people from the dead. Not something you try. But when the anointing and power is there, you'll know it. But it's not something you try. But look at the look at the tongue control. He had a he had control over what he said, and he was encouraging others. Don't listen to the negatives. Control what you say. Don't get. I mean, if Jairus would have stopped and said, "Hold it, wait a minute. I didn't know she was dead, Lord. I, I changed my mind. I guarantee Jesus would have stopped in his tract and said, "Okay, what do you want to do here? Do you want to believe or not?" We put the brakes on God when we refuse to simply believe and turn it over unto Him and refuse to consider the circumstances and simply follow what He says. Well, we use the name and the word of the blood of Jesus in that warfare against the powers of darkness. And the principles I've given you, if we'll apply them, in resisting Satan, you'll see where we can experience greater power, greater blessing in our life as we learn to not just live in the Spirit, but walk in the Spirit and do what he says. Certainly a lot of food for thought and prayer. His ministry was one that was an example that we should really be thinking about and praying about and looking for ways to apply those same principles to our own life. And that's why we've taught it. Father, I pray that the Word would just be food for thought. I just...
cover the word with the blood of Jesus and rebuke Satan from trying to steal it because I know even right now he will. But I pray that those that hear this message would give it time for meditation and thought and prayer and searching of the scriptures to see if these things be so. And pray just like Paul did in the book of Ephesians that we would be granted revelation and wisdom and knowledge concerning these things that we might know who we are and what we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the word. We pray it be blessed to all that hear it. Amen. Amen. Food for thought. God bless.